Welcome to the Studio Musician Academy podcast. Today's guest is Nir Z. Nir has circled the globe in his journey to become one of the industry's most in-demand session players. Beginning his career in his home country of Israel, continuing on to New York City, and then finally landing in his current home base of Nashville. Throughout his musical expedition, he has collaborated with countless iconic artists, including Genesis, John Mayer, Chris Cornell, Carrie Underwood, and Blake Shelton. Nier's impressive versatility and passion for perfecting the intricacies of the recording process have allowed him to remain a first-call drummer for over four decades and counting. Nier has an incredible home studio, which he has optimized for being able to quickly navigate a variety of drum sound approaches with a unique combination of microphone configurations. His sounds are so highly sought after that companies such as TuneTrack and That Sound have called on him to create some of the most acclaimed drum sample collections in the industry. This conversation dives deep into the early stages of finding your creative tribe, discovering opportunity organically, developing a deep musical toolbox, and unpacking unique recording techniques to execute a standout sound and performance. We are grateful to have the opportunity to welcome our friend Nir Z to the podcast. Let's go. Nir, what does being a great session player mean to you? A great session player is uh, a player, a musician who can adapt and serve the music, serve the song, serve the producer vision, the artist vision in every scenario. It's years of experience, memorize scenarios, memorize your experience, and always be open-minded because anything can happen and there is always surprises of mm -hmm. um, how people want to go about it. And becoming ready for those surprises that occur and being ready for every scenario requires a lot of education on a lot of different styles of music and, and be, becoming a student of of music in the in the early days of, of your finding your passion for drums uh, around 12 years old um, where did you start to begin to develop that musical library that's a good one I think listening to a lot of music first of all and and I gotta be honest I don't have the time to listen as much as I used to as a 12 years old, as a mm. teenager, you know? Uh, we don't get those uh, three, four hours right now. I'm just listening to music. And that include every kind of music. That's A. B, as a musician, as a player, regardless if you're a drummer or a guitar player or a bass player, uh, you start to analyze and okay, why is it I love it so much? What is it? What's happening here? And this group of people playing this song or instrumental piece of music or whatever it is that makes me want to listen to it over and over again. And that's another part of the process. Mm -hmm. And then next stage, you become more active as a player. You start playing with people. You start playing with people that are more experienced than you are. And you learn how to adapt, how to become part of the ensemble. It's not just, you know, there is two stages, I always said. I mean, there is more than two, two stages. It's like being an individual, you know, a young kid, and all you think is about your instrument, just playing drums, you know, you're so into it. This mm -hmm. is, oh, I cannot wait to play this drum field about to come up. <laughs> you know, right. in four bars, it's it's when you get to the stage when you step away from your instrument and you become more objective about it, related, related to the music that you're playing. 
And how that instrument fits into the other instruments. How, exactly. In range, right? You know, it's a conversation. It's a, it's a, it's a togetherness. It's, it's all about the, it's all about the chemistry and how those instruments create something that makes everybody feels good. Right. You know, makes you want to dance, makes you want to whatever. It just, it got to become one unit. And, and this is part of the process. I believe to any player growing up, and understand, okay, there is your instrument, this is your world that you so attached to, but at the same time, your world need to open up and become part of other people, worlds and, and, and notes and music, and how we gonna make it special together. I would say that's pretty much it. That's my, that was my process. When did, when did looking at a, a career as a drummer become a, become a thing that you recognized was a possibility? I was very lucky to play with older musicians than I am. I was always the baby <laughs> in the band, <laughs> working with a lot of guys, playing a lot of clubs, um, doing all those, you know, early sessions in some really funky, you know, tiny four-track studios. When you were working in some of those early studios that may have been a little limited in like, you know, equipment or, or space and that sort of thing, were there any things that you learned about how to either get a better recording or what was important in recording when you have those limitations around you? Perfect example, a dear friend of mine back in my country who had this tiniest studio. I mean, it was like an even like 10 by 10 or something like that. You could barely fit a drum kit in there. Uh -huh. Now, you know, we are as teenagers, you know, we want to get this big sound, you know, we're listening to those records. And I remember one time we were recording and I realized, wait a second, A, it sounds so tiny and I couldn't figure this out at the beginning. Why? I mean, I'm playing with a lot of power and then I realized, okay, I played a bit softer and softer and softer. And I've learned for the first time that I need to adjust myself to the room I'm playing in. So you had developed quite an exceptional career in Israel and then made the decision to move to New York. When did you decide to, to move there and what led you to go to New York? So it was the end of 92. There was a lot of live music still going on. You could literally go out every night and jam with great musicians from all over. Over the time, uh, you know, start playing with this guys and this guy and, and, and just create a name for yourself. Mm -hmm. and then start getting calls for recording sessions. Where did those calls start to come from? Pretty much at the beginning, I used to do a gig on uh, 14th Street in Manhattan. That was the time when the acid jazz was very popular in New York. And there were a bunch of great players. I'm talking incredible players. And we used to jam along with the DJ. Oh, so wow. there will be a DJ and we play on top of the DJ. Um, so an example, the, the woman who was running this parties, if you want to call it, was every Tuesday night. She was the manager for Platinum Island Recording Studios in Manhattan. So she was the one, for example, who told the, the owner of the studio about this weird guy from Israel. Long story short, here you are, you know, uh, get a call. Hey, this is Richie Kessler. I'm calling from Platinum Island. Would like to 
book you for a session. And I just built, you know. Uh, I also had my own band for many years in New York. Many people don't know that because my goal was to be in a band. And then I got a call to audition for Genesis. That happened very quickly. Uh, that happened like 97. And when they asked me to play on their record and go on the, on the road with them, okay, I, I had to do it, you know? So, but this all happened because of the New York City experience, um, playing with so many great musicians and learn so much. So then what, what led you to uh, move to Nashville? After Genesis and touring with uh, different people and recording with different people. And during that time, around, I would say, 2005, I got the first, time, first phone call from Nashville. Uh, that was uh, Wally Wilson and Paul Woolley. They were producing a record new new artist or no, Warner or something. Luckily, I arrived here, never been to Nashville. I mean, I played here before, but, you know, on a tour, in and out, but, mm -hmm. and here I am in Nashville, you know, that still the airport was the size of a library. I remember when I arrived <laughs> here, it was like, oh my God, I love it. You know, so quiet and laid back, got to do this project. And luckily, I got to, experienced Nashville with some of the best musicians in town. Dan Dugmore was playing. <laughs> Reggie Young, one of the greatest, all-time greatest guitar players, rest in peace. Glenn Wolf on bass. I mean, incredible group of people. And I, and I got to say, that was pretty inc incredible experience. This is the first time I got to see the number system. What were some of the things that you noticed that were different about the uh, production process or creative process between New York and Nashville? It, it took some time to get used to, we have three hour session and we got to record, we, uh, we must cut three songs. Doesn't give you much headroom to be creative. How do you prepare yourself to be able to execute when you're limited on time, but you still have to be well, creative and be that professional? That, that's a great question. You need to read the room. For example, for you changing the, the, the groove, changing the, the subdivisions, because you know that can change the whole freaking thing. An extra bass drum here or less bass drum there can change the vibe, the feel. So mm -hmm. it's a very quick decision, reading everybody's mind and look at the clock and make this decision that should I go down this road or not? Uh, so when you think about your work in the studio and we talk a lot about music and the connection between the different instruments, mm -hmm. uh, what are some of the things for you as a drummer that you're listening to on the first take through a song? or when you're listening to the work tape that you're thinking about in the people that are in the other chairs? I'm listening to the vocals. I, when we play a song, this is the most important thing to me. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, it's, it's uh, because it's a song, because every song has a story. Some can be deeper than another. The vocals, the phrasing of the vocals, it's extremely important to me. What does the phrasing of the vocals inform in what you actually play? The actual phrasing of the vocal, um, you know, we never really analyze that, but each singer has his own 
rhythm. Each one has its own rhythm. It's, and that's the beauty of it. You know, three people can sing the same song and you're going to get a completely different vibe and a different phrasing. Usually the, the phrasing of the singer really helps me to find my comfort zone in the groove. Where is it I'm playing it? Or is I'm sitting back on my head, I'm here or I'm there. So you would say that their phrasing impacts your feel? Absolutely. Gotcha. Does Absolutely. it impact the, 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 the actual part that you play? Like the pattern of the be. hi-hat or the... It can be, you know, always have this accent and this word that is singing in the chorus. Should I lift it with an extra kick drum over there or accent on the hi-hat or, oh no, or maybe the other way around. I should leave it alone mm -hmm. to give her, to give him the room so the vocals stands out, stands out even more. Sure. So... Uh, Again, that's the beauty of it. To me, it's just something that, okay, let's try it this way. Let's try it this way. You know, sometimes, you know, you accent along with the singer can make it sound actually smaller and take away that coolness, if you like, of the, of mm -hmm. the singer phrasing. Right. We, 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 we need to give that storyteller the space and know when to join it and when to step back it and and again it's it's a very individual uh approach uh, each has his own you know somebody else might play it completely different and it will be great and and this is also what i like about sometimes i do like to get ideas from people who don't really play the instrument because they don't think as a drummer you know they literally don't think as a drummer they like they don't think if like hey if he plays xyz it doesn't make sense you know you cannot really play this extra accent over there you, you know what i mean it's mm -hmm. like um but it can lead you to some cool ideas mm -hmm. well i can't do that really but what I can do this. Yeah. I love hearing that perspective because I, I feel like it can be a, um, a tricky thing that you can get pulled into as a player thinking about, well, I can't take advice from this person because they don't play my instrument and how dare they tell me what my pattern should be, you know, but you take it from a perspective of, well, maybe that could open up some new ideas. Oh, it you know, took me for, years to, to take it. You know, it, it took me some years. You know, there is many scenarios because the same way I mentioned, like, you know, it can be whatever. The guy who plays the steel guitar, who never played a drum set in his lifetime, throwing some idea and it's like, wait a second, that can be cool. Let me, let me find my way. And at the same time, and that's related uh, to be a session player. Like you said, how can you be a great session player? It's where the producer, for example, asks you to play something that you don't feel it. You literally don't feel You think in your mind, you know, it's like, that's wrong. It just doesn't feel right. Years ago, I used to really struggle and argue. Now I'm saying to you and any other of my friends, well, if this is what he hears, this is what he hears. 
Even though you convince a hundred percent, it's wrong. You need to find the lane. You need to find this one tiny thing in his idea that you can relate to. And in real time, you need to make it your own. You need to find this one thing that makes you comfortable. Because if you don't, you won't be able to make it feel good. Technically, you can play it. Obviously, you can play it technically. But if you don't find that spot where you feel, okay, let me do it this way and I can relate. If I can relate, I can make it feel right. A feeling and connection is something that, that the phrases that you've used a lot, which makes me wonder how outside of the like the musical connection to something, how do you or do you get in, in some way emotionally connected to a song or, or a vocal or a melody or something? What, is there any part of that that you pull? Some players are very focused on like their musicianship and they don't necessarily need to embody the song or feel the story or feel like they're part of a character in the story or something in order to perform something that, that sounds good, you know? Um, but with you talking so much about feeling and connection, I wonder how it's all about that, that applies to you. It's not, you know, English is, is not my first language and happened before. And, and you know what? We need to separate it. I mean, when you play a song, when it's, uh, um, let's take an example. We'll do something like more like a, a country pop song. Okay. Friday night party kind of song. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the, the main thing, it's the party, it's the groove, it's, it's the dancing mode, which is cool, which is very easy to, to understand and get it. Now, when we're talking about the singer-songwriter, somebody come up with something a bit more sophisticated. Lyrically, what is, it sing what is the person singing about? I, I really want to know what is the song is all about. It does, personally, it does affect me. It really does affect me. Um, I think it's so important that you understand what is it you're playing. Like, it doesn't make sense to, well, I think this song is a pretty happy song. And then, wait a second, it's actually very melancholy. It's actually very dark. You know, I have a good, a great memory many years ago. I can't remember who did the article. It was a great article that I read. Uh, was Modern Drama Magazine at the time. And um, I think the overall interview was uh, they interviewed different producers who worked with all those legendary drummers. We're talking Jeff Bocaro, Steve Gadd, um, Jim Keltner. And there was a producer, whoever it was, a legendary producer, who was talking about the feelings when you play your instrument. And he mentioned that they were doing a session and Jim Kiltner was playing drums. He said, you know, we had a good session. It was a pretty sad song. He said, and I was the first one to show up in the studio the day after. He goes, and the first thing I always do, I start putting the fader up. And the first thing I do, I put the drum faders up. And he goes, I put those drums up and they were so sad. And I was so, I thought to myself, that was incredible. They were playing a sad song and he actually delivered that. 
just with his drumming. You know, that, that to me, what, what an achievement. You know, I put the faders up and the drums were so sad. Right. You know, and, and, uh, but that again, that's me. That's the way I, I'm, that's the way I live life. Um, so in the, in those cases where, where you may not have a clear understanding of what the song means, is that something that you ask the producer artist or that you like that you bring I, up? I, I have. Yeah, mm-hmm. I have. If I was, you know, if I was not sure what is it about. And, and by the way, I witness, um, uh, I was on sessions where the, the artist will be kind enough to share. By the way, I wrote this song when I was in so-and-so place and I went through so-and-so things. And it's like, and I thought it's great, you know, to let the band that about to play your music, what is the song about? You know, some are very obvious, obviously, you know, which is okay too. You don't need explanation <laughs> what the song is all about, but... I think it's a very cool thing, you know, because I think it does affect the way we're going to play the song, you know, because when somebody is telling you a story, you 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 see a picture in front of you. You see you see the story. You see colors, you see you hear sounds, you know, and 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 uh, and it's going to affect you, you know? It's like if you had an idea, this is the guitar I'm going to use or the pedal I'm going, the, the effect I'm going to use. Hearing this story, hearing the artist talking about the song might give you a completely different idea. Oh, wait a second. Let me press, press this pedal and grab this guitar. And that's the beauty of it. So like many session musicians over the past, I'd say, decade or, or more, um, you've transitioned into recording from home as well as recording in the studio yes, sir. with players. Uh, how long have you been doing that and what inspired that process? I actually, longer than you think, I've been doing this for many years, many years. And it's been, I never had a desire, any desire to become an engineer. <laughs> Swear to God, there's uh-huh. something that... And after the birth of my second child, I mean, I did it before, but this is when, hey, I didn't feel like I want to go on the road too much. And I, and I was on the road, you know. Also, I didn't want to be, I, I, I wanted to be my own boss. I, don't, I didn't want to be depending on other person to record me in my studio, you know, and, and, um, and as you know, this is a, it's, it's a learning process. And I was extremely lucky that uh, back in New York, got to work with some incredible engineers who told me a lot. I mean, they told me a great deal. One of them is Neil Dorsman, um, Mr. Power Station. I mean, he's one of the, you know, when we're talking about Bob Clear Mountain and, and Neil, Neil Dorsman, we're talking the same, mm-hmm. you know, listen to Brothers in Arms of the Asterisks to this day. You know, this is Neil. And Neil and I did the, all the superior drummer, easy drummer, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. I did all the samples and Neil recorded me. And he's one of the guys who told me so much. All of a sudden, you know, it was just a click. I kind of, I fell in love with the process, mm-hmm. you know. Right now, I'm in a point where I love even, you know, having an, uh, a drummer in my studio 
playing and I just love experimenting with the miking and uh -huh. you know um, just became another addiction and I and, and that's it and B I wanted to give myself the freedom to be able to if anyone calls me from anywhere can send me the files and I train myself for a long time to record myself this this side of the process <laughs> takes longer than the actual plane but i came to enjoy it and and um have fun with it uh what have you learned about dealing with remote when you're working remotely you you have to be the engineer and the musician mm -hmm. um you're relying on, on your equipment and you have all kinds of different clients that are asking for a variety of different sounds yeah. how have you set up your studio to be able to be versatile in that way People have different visions and, and taste as far as uh, recording drums, especially such a complex instrument to record. I end up uh, building my setup over the years where I would like to think that cover pretty much every sound that you would like to achieve. So a part of the actual drum sets that I change relate, you know, related to the music and the producer uh, approach. First, I always ask to send me some, uh, uh, any links, any, any examples, you know, even uh, uh, something that is not, is, it's a very different song, but hey, you know, sonically, this is my vision. This is what I'm going for. Mm -hmm. So I will try, first of all, to get it from the source, get it from the drums, you know, and then I just record a lot of microphones. Uh, you know, get the telephone cans left and right, uh, 260Bs, great tube pencil microphones. Mm -hmm. And there is a stereo ribbon mic in the center that changes the drum sound extremely between the two, or you can use both of them. Yeah, it will be three pairs of room microphones. There will be three bass drum microphones. Uh, and on and on and on and on and on. The reason I do it, again, just to not have to <laughs> rebuild the sound over and over again. Mm -hmm. um, you can use all, you can use some of it, you can, you know, and I always make notes. I always write back to the producer, this what's going on. Don't get nervous. You know, it does happen when I, when I, when I deal with younger producers, I call it the virtual instruments generation. <laughs> Um, you know, because they're used to it right? and they put all the faders up, but you do not need to put all those faders up. <laughs> you know, there's no, there is no need for 21 microphones <laughs> be up there playing at the same time. Mm -hmm. A, because, you know, putting 21 microphones at the same time in absolute phase, uh, it's almost mission impossible. Right. Uh, maybe there is some genius out there who can can do that, but <laughs> yeah. so this is pretty much how I do it. So you yeah. like to give people those those variety of options through having those microphone options already there, and then that way they can kind of choose between them. Absolutely. And the idea of getting getting sonic references, I think, is incredible because then you have oh. I do that <clears throat> with with artists that I'm that I'm working with, or if someone sends me a project to mix, try to get because we can music is so subjective. And how we describe sound is very subjective. That, so when that's one person, exactly. One that's, person says vintage, that means one thing to one person and something completely different to somebody else. You know, to this day, all these years we've been doing this, it's just, it does, does blows my mind. Even just the instrument. Like, I'm not even touching the microphones. Just to hear it back. Played a, a drum set from the 60s. Move those drums away and put a modern hi-fi drum set 
literally not touching the mic, play the same beat, play the same thing. It's night and day. Mm-hmm. You know, that's before we even start tweaking microphones. And 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 so a, a producer will send me any reference. It, it, it really helps me a great deal. Because like you said, it's so subjective. Okay. You know, hey, it could have a really deep snare on this song. Or you know what? You can actually have a really kind of ringy, high pitched snare. It will change the song completely. So once you have the tracks laid down, do you do, you, um, do any specific type of like preparation or do you have any process for keeping your tracks organized and being able to recall things as far as like making your process working from home more efficient? Yeah. Do you know, I take, uh, oh, another thing to relate it to that. I always ask the producer, and most time people do that. I always ask, can you please send me a stems of the drums you use to create the playback? Even if it's, you know, any of the virtual drum stuff, you know, mm-hmm. just so I can hear what you played with. I will take his performance and perform that live. Tiny different interpretations here and there, you know, make it a bit more human because it's mm-hmm. human. Second take will be what I call my interpretation of what he created and things that I think might be cool. And sometimes will be the third playlist where I'll stretch a little bit even more. Even if I gave you something, hey, something really cool happened on the bridge, that you can grab from the third. Mm-hmm. So uh, doing this for so long, I I create those playlists in a way where I'm also trying to imagine, okay, what if he wants to grab this and that and put those together? Most likely it will be very easy for you to do, you know, to comp between. Some will say, hey, man, I love take two. Going to use that. I, I can never send one take because I find I'm being creative now. <laughs> okay, you know, mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, that's great, but it could be this way. But there is, you know, if you got to make a decision. You need to know when to put it to bed because it's endless. Especially if the producer is not there, you'll be okay with all that. Mm-hmm. You know, that's going to be good. And if there is a recall over there somewhere sometime, that's the one thing with drums because if you need to change the setup for like, I would like to get some response, you know, I can put together like MP3s or something, a quick rough. If there is a recall in the next hour or in a, to two hours, we can still do that. Um, but that's pretty much it. Yeah, because that's a challenging thing if you need to make a revision to go back and, and do that oh, after absolutely. you've moved on to the next absolutely. three songs you're, you know, you're working on that day. So, so you talk with your clients about that ahead of time, I guess, or, or they already know that through working with you that if they are going to want to change on something after you've given them those options, absolutely. they're going to need to get back to you pretty quickly. So communication, important thing to make communication, sure Communication, it's extremely important. Right. Which, uh, it's very frustrating because sometimes people don't even, <laughs> not even people don't pick up the phone. They don't even answer text. You know what I mean? It's like, what else do we need? <laughs> it's like, but, you know, I go with the flow. So yeah. Well, you could just get a little, you know, carrier pigeon and just drop a little. Yeah, exactly. Oh, you know, here and there we can do the, uh, what do you call it? the The audio mover, you know, if you want to. And, right. and again, if I, if I work with a particular 
producer that uh, is, a, is very, sorry, a producer is very particular of what he wants, I would suggest, hey, let's do audio mover, you know. So they can listen while you're recording. Yeah, be with me because mm -hmm. um, that would be much more productive, I think, for both of us. Right. You, you know. And so you make that suggestion when you're working with a producer that Absolutely. is very particular with Yeah, things. if I, I sense it, you know, if it's yeah. very, very particular, uh, I'd rather you be there with me. If you can be there physically, at least we could do audio mover and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So right. I'm not spending four hours on something that is completely, <laughs> you know, right. different for what you want. So in addition to, to other ways that you can, you know, make a living as a musician outside of just playing on sessions, mm -hmm. you, know, you do remote recording, but something else that you've gotten into, which you briefly mentioned was, was doing samples for Easy Drummer, but you've also created a drum pack with that sound. Um, but you I forgot. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so it was that something that was just sort of brought to you and you were like, yeah, sure, let's do it. Or is that, are those types of opportunities and ideas, things that, that, that you uh, foster for yourself? This just something that happened over the years when we did the, it started with tune track with Superior Drummer. And man, I can't even remember how, how long ago, but this was something that I knew nothing about it. I mean, I knew there is samples, you know, we all knew, but if you remember when Easy Drummer came out and Superior Drummer was a revolutionary. I mean, I remember people's faces when we did the first presentation at NAMM show. Right. And I was playing electronic kit with those sound. People were freaking out. But before that, I didn't even realize how detailed it can be. And the reason I got into it, because of Neil Dorsman, which I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. he was the one who called me. He said, listen, they approached me, they want me to do it. And I said, if I do it, I want to do it with you. And I'm like, what are we talking about? <laughs> you know, because I had no idea. He goes, man, I don't know, but I have a feeling we're going to sell Sell our soul to the devil. That's how he said that. <laughs> we did all the New York City studios. We did Hit Factory, Avatar, Allaire. Uh, we actually did um, Hit Factory. That was the last weekend before they closed down the studio. Wow. We left the studio on Monday, like 5 or 6 a.m. 10 a.m., they start breaking down the studio, which was extremely sad. So this is how I got into it. I kind of made a name for myself because people associate me with the superior drummer, uh, which was a brutal, brutal process. Sampled, you know, all those sounds. Uh, you know, I even got to a point over the, over the years where people um, used to send me tracks, even though I had my studio in New York, People send me tracks to play electronic drum set using Superior Drummer. <laughs> it, it was really a, a weird kind of thing because mm -hmm. even all the MIDI library I created for them was playing. Basically, I played with songs mm -hmm. and I play, you know, the Roland kit just triggering the Superior Drummer. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's it. So it just kind of became a thing and I got associated with with that world and then the that sound i mean between that sound and superior i got i remember companies that honestly i never heard of i did one thing for waves that honestly never came out uh, and not because of the sounds just because they changed their priorities over time to concentrate on different uh, instruments 
and -hmm. different plugins and all that kind of stuff. It might happen, who knows? Mm -hmm. Then we did that sound, uh, me and uh, my friend Jeff Giuliano. Mm -hmm. And actually, we did another one, me and Jeff, we did with uh, Slate. Um, And that's an interesting one. And we've been waiting for a few years for this thing to come out. The concept is, if you're familiar with the, the Slate microphone, Mm-hmm. The virtual microphones, so it's the same concept. So you got the multi-track microphones, all of the Slate microphones, but you as the users, you get to choose what is the microphones you're going to use. You know, so instead of like exactly like with the vocal mic, you can decide whatever mic you want on each individual drum or room or overheads and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So this is something, okay, you know, this is making a living. I will lie to you if I say it's musical. No, it's not. I mean, I enjoy the technical side of it. You know, I like mm-hmm. to learn more curves, you know, a little bit more about, you know, recording the instrument. But there's also what, things there. I guess my point is that there's things like that that are outside of the day-to-day work that we do, which we, you know, which we love, which can facilitate in the freedom to be able to continue to be selective with the projects that you work on. And, yeah. You know, and, that sort and, of thing. And, and to be quite honest, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't say, uh, I won't be fair to say, you know, it's very little how selective you can be. <laughs> you know, we're still making a living. Mm-hmm. I'm still, you know, about to send my daughter to college soon. So being selective, it's a very, it sounds a bit too, <laughs> too extreme. Were there any, um, were there any technical skills that you learned in the process of creating those samples that started to apply to your own home recording or to playing on sessions as far oh, as absolutely. like capturing a sound or the, absolutely. I imagine that there's so much detail that's going into just the fine tuning of each sample and, you know, and hit. Is there anything that you took away from it that was a real eye-opening experience? I would say none of us drummers, unless there is somebody out there that I'm not aware of, get to... That was the very first time when we did Superior Drummer. Those guys were so detailed that they were trying to imagine every... Okay, we need to imagine every scenario as far as even just the dynamic so when you start, when you go through those um, samples process and you start from pianissimo, like literally touching the, the, the snare drum, the corner, and try to go all the way up to 127 because this is right. the limitations we have. Right. In MIDI, you're going from zero in to mid, 127 from, in velocity. In velocity. So you have to have that many... You have to have that many, but then you, it's not only that many, it's just to remember also that it doesn't matter. Every drummer, anyone who will play behind a a snare drum or any drum, when you hit it with your right hand and your left hand, they slightly, they sound slightly different. A, you hit the drum in a different spot, therefore the overtone would be slightly different. And then you're getting into this. We almost lost our mind. I mean, analyze all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And the reason was just because we wanted to create something that will sound very real. You know, so if you're playing a crescendo from zero, even all the way to 127, each hit, even though if I hit it 
let's say in velocity five, I hit exact five on my with my right hand and my left hand, still gonna sound slightly different. I had to get into a, a meditation mode over there, you know, not to, to lose my mind. Mm -hmm. But I did learn a lot, answer your question about the recording process. Because when you listen back to all these things, you really get to listen to different velocities that you don't really pay attention when you play your instrument on a session. It's like, wait a second, when I hit it over here in this particular velocity, it sounds so beautiful. It sounds so round and it sounds so beautiful versus beat the heck out of the drum and you think it's going to sound so much bigger, which is not really. So yeah, now uh, we've learned a lot. Yeah. We, we definitely learn a lot, you know, include every instrument waiting, you know, in the drum set. Not to mention when we're dealing with phase issues that that's forever, forever. I literally, I was dreaming about phase. So <laughs> <laughs> I got to point like you dream about it. Well, man, near between your career in Israel, <clears throat> in New York, in Nashville, you've basically like lived one life and you've had like three incredible careers that are all tied together into one incredible experience mm. for someone that's out there that's trying to find a way to be able to live their passion and do this for a living every day mm -hmm. is there something that you feel like you could take away from your experiences that would help to maybe inform like what what results in longevity in this industry well i gotta be honest i gotta be careful with the answer and the reason I'm saying that, because everything you mentioned, each of these chapters were different places and different time. So if you mention New York, for example, that's a complete different New York City that I lived in. And that's a complete different music industry that I was in at that time. And you and I both live in Nashville. And in the last 10 years, we both witness the changes and this is the reason that i need to be very uh, correct with the answer i would say and that sounds maybe a cliche believe in yourself that's it you really i know you we always say that you got to believe in yourself that's a do not compare yourself to anyone else find your identity your identity what is your voice because if you do have a voice there is a place for you, always. And, and this is a fine line there. It's not about just like, hey, I can do what he does, but you need to bring your own voice into it, your own persona. For better or worse, you're not going to please everyone. And you're probably not going to please yourself all the time. And, and that's okay. Once you accept that, this is part of the process because it's endless. So you really need to find your voice and your signature. Make sure when you play your instrument, I think one of you goes, well, no, it's you playing this instrument. How can you bring something that has a signature? Like when you play a drum feel, oh, okay, this is him. And be patient because it takes time to develop. Simple as that. <laughs> Right. And not. <laughs> man, thank you so much for doing yeah, this. Yeah, man. It was a pleasure to be able to chat with you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely.